you'd like to try to track along with a few of the verses that we're going to talk about this morning, you could start with Luke chapter 7. You can also take your bulletin out. There's notes in there, an outline of what we're going to talk about. Uh, All the bulletins are still different on the outside, but they're the same, or at least they should be on the inside, so don't let that throw you for a loop. In this series, this is week two in our Sunday morning series called Deadly, we're doing something a little bit different. Typically, on a Sunday morning, we pick a particular passage. We work our way through that passage, taking our points from one uh, specific passage of Scripture. What we're doing right now on Sunday mornings is we're trying to take in all that the Bible might say about each of the seven deadly sins. And so I mentioned this last week, to really make the most of this series, coming and listening and taking notes is a good thing. It would also be great for you to follow up this week and look at all of the Scripture references that we've provided to you on the handout. We're going to cover a lot of those, and I'm going to put a lot of them up on the screen But some of those we're not going to talk about. And it would be a good thing as you go back this week and think about the sin of gluttony to go back and look at some of these verses. One of the things I said to you last week is that the seven deadly sins are not a biblical category. And what I mean by that is they're not grouped together, these specific sins in the scriptures. Uh, These sins have their origin with a monk who lived over 1,500 years ago. His name was Evagrius of Pontus. He was also known as Evagrius the Solitary. And he talked about eight particular sins that were particularly bothersome to him as he lived out in the desert. He's trying to get away from the sin and the corruption of the world. And all by himself in the wilderness, in the desert, he realizes just how sinful he is. Those eight that Evagrius talked about were narrowed down to a list of seven by Pope Gregory. John Calvin tells us that Pope Gregory was the last good pope. You can do with that whatever you want to do with it, whether you agree with him or disagree with him. Either way, Calvin says he was the last good pope. He's known as Gregory the Great. And Gregory talked about seven. He didn't use the term deadly sins. He called them capital sins. And when Gregory talked about these seven sins, he was talking less about what we do or don't do, like our actions or our inaction, and he was talking more about the desires of our heart that result in various actions. He talked about seven capital sins. One of the sins on his list was gluttony. And I just want to acknowledge on the outset something a little bit awkward about this sin, It's that none of us seem to take it very seriously. Here's how I know that's the case. For several weeks now, several months, I've been telling friends, staff members, different folks, hey, I'm going to do a series on the seven deadly sins. Multiple people, I would guess no less than 20, have said to me in person, text message, voicemail, hey, let me know when you're going to talk about gluttony. I don't want to be there that week. And it's sort of like a nervous, joking comment. No one, not a single person has said, hey, the week you talk about lust, I don't want to listen. Nobody wants to admit that that might be a problem. No one has said, when you talk about envy, I don't want anything to do with that message. But there's some measure of safety. There's some willingness on our part to say, yeah, gluttony. 
that's probably one that's a problem for me. We're willing to admit it when we're not maybe willing to admit that we struggle with some of these other sins. It is a deadly sin. We're going to talk about that this morning. It's just not a sin that we're deadly serious about. We're going to try to make sense of that this morning. So we'll start with the definition. This will just sort of be a a ground-level jumping-off point for us. Gluttony is the controlling desire. Those two words are important. It's a controlling desire, not just a desire, but a controlling desire to overindulge in food or drink. And each of these sins has a a virtue that might correspond with it. Self-control is the virtue that corresponds with this vice. The word gluttony in English comes from an old French word, and it literally means to gulp down. Sometimes the seven deadly sins are associated with animals, and you would probably not be surprised for me to tell you that historically, gluttony is associated with a pig. That just sort of gives you a mental image, just gulping down, just eating and getting bigger and bigger and bigger. When you think about gluttony in 2020 United States of America, maybe you think about our friend Joey Chestnut. How many of you on the 4th of July have ever watched the Nathan's famous hot dog eating contest? I think the record that Mr. Chestnut set this year was 75 hot dogs and buns in 10 minutes. That's the definition of gulping it down, right? So maybe you think gluttony, Joey Chestnut. Maybe you think about my hometown and you think about a place like the Big Texan. How many of you have ever eaten at the Big Texan? It's not the best food in Amarillo. It is not the best steak in Amarillo. It is one of the funnest places to just go and be at. Even if you don't like to, to eat food at the Big Texan, you might just want to go stop and take it all in. They offer a free dinner. Free. If you can eat it in under an hour, and all it is is a 72-ounce slab of steak and all the fixings, baked potato, shrimp cocktail, salad, dinner roll. you got an hour to do it. They put you up on a platform in the middle of the restaurant. They put a big clock above your head. They say, ready, set, go, and you have to gulp it down. Maybe that's what you think of when you think of gluttony. Or rather than pointing fingers outside of this building, maybe we point them inside this building. And when we think gluttony, we think men's cake bake. Those are the pictures I took. Not this year. We had to cancel the men's cake bake this year. But last year, 2019, those were the cakes that were brought to the men's cake bake. We judge them. We score them. We crown a champion. We go through the line and we eat. We eat cake and more cake and pie and more pies. And somebody brought cookies in there. I mean, we just eat and we eat and we eat and we gulp it down until we feel like we're about to pop. Maybe that's your idea of what gluttony is. Here's what I want to say to you this morning. If your thoughts of gluttony go immediately to Joey Chestnut, 72-ounce steak, men's cake bake, I just want to hit the pause button. In this series, I want to talk about what the seven deadly sins are. I also want to be clear about what they're not. And I think that's really important when it comes to gluttony. So let me tell you a few things that are not gluttony. Number one, gluttony cannot be equated with obesity. We just need to say that out loud at the very beginning. Might there be a connection between a person who is a glutton and their weight? There might be a connection there. 
might not be a surprising connection. But does that connection, that possible connection, mean that every obese person is a glutton and every skinny person is not a glutton? Absolutely not. You cannot draw that line. Related and similar, we can't just measure it by calories. Wouldn't that be nice if we could? That's sort of a pharisaical approach to sin and righteousness. You come in Sunday morning and I say, look, you get this many calories a day and it's very clear and it's very black and white. It's just not very biblical. I can't give you a a number for how many calories you ought to eat a day. If you have a job like mine where you're mostly working in an office, you probably need less calories than a guy who works in Odessa out in the oil field in the heat of the day, swinging a shovel or swinging a hammer, digging with the shovel, whatever. So you can tell I don't work out in the oil field. I'm swinging shovels, right? That guy needs more calories than a guy sitting at a desk studying for a sermon. So we can't measure it by calories. Thirdly, the sin of gluttony doesn't mean that we're not going to feast. Sometimes this is how we joke about gluttony sort of nervously. We say like, oh, it's my birthday. Had a big dinner. Had three pieces of birthday cake. I guess that's gluttony. Or we say, well, it's Thanksgiving. Do you know how much turkey I ate today? Do you see how much stuffing I ate today? Oh, I guess that's gluttony. You can't just equate gluttony with a feast, a big meal. And I would just remind you, in the Old Testament, When God spelled out how he wanted his people to worship, one of the things he told the Israelites to do was to have an occasional feast. Guess what you do when you have a feast? You eat a lot of food. You get more full than you probably need to be. And God said, this is what I want you to do on these particular days. I want you to have a feast. I want you to celebrate. I want you to be full. So we can't just say these things are gluttony. Gluttony is the controlling desire to overindulge in food. You and I have to remember that by design, by God's design, we are people who have to eat. God didn't have to make us that way. The angels, as far as we know, do not have to eat. They do not need physical nourishment. You and I are created with a physical body We need to eat. We need to drink something if we want to live. God looked on that situation as he created it in Genesis and said, this is very good, all of it. The fact that you have a body, the fact that I put you in a garden, the fact that you've got to eat several times a day to feel healthy and to be strong, all of these things are by God's design. It's a built-in reminder to you and me that we're not self-sufficient. We're not self-existent creatures. We are dependent. We're dependent on something as simple as bread to live. We're dependent on God to provide our daily bread. This is part of God's design for us. Gluttony is a controlling desire to overindulge. The glutton is the person who looks to food or drink to give satisfaction or maybe even distraction. The glutton is the person who looks to food and drink not just to fill up a physical need, a legitimate physical need, but to fill up an emotional need or maybe even a spiritual need. I like how Jonathan Bauer says it. He just gets right to the point and he says, gluttony is food worship. It's food worship. 
It's looking to food or drink to do what only God can do for you. And if you adopt that idea of gluttony, it's not just the pig shoveling in more, 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 but it's food worship. We might also say, are you ready for this? That radical, legalistic forms of dieting could also be gluttony, right? At the root, what Bowers is saying is gluttony is obsessing about food, taking a necessary thing and making it an ultimate thing. You can make food ultimate by eating nonstop, just overindulging, or you can make food ultimate by chasing the perfect figure and adopting a radical, maybe even unhealthy form of dieting. I like William Willimon. He says it this way, anytime we make the belly of God and obsess over it, that's the issue, obsessing over it, worrying about it too much, positively or negatively, this would be considered gluttony. Why is it such a common problem? Let me give you just a few thoughts about why this is a common problem. Number one, it's easy for us to do this. It is very, very easy for us to turn to food and drink as a source for satisfaction or distraction. The fact that we must eat and we must have something to drink if we want to physically continue our lives makes it very easy to begin looking to food, looking to drink, not just to meet a physical need, but to fill a spiritual or an emotional need. That might take the form of binge eating. That might take the form of emotional stuffing your face with food to make yourself feel better. That could certainly take the form of drunkenness, overindulging to try to distract yourself from the problems of this world. It's easy for people to do this. Secondly, I think this is worth pointing out. Some substances create dependency and addiction. You can easily get caught in sort of a feedback loop here where you're turning to a substance to meet a physical need and an emotional, spiritual need, and then you become addicted or dependent on that substance. You've certainly seen how that plays out in people's lives with something like alcohol. Somebody who made the decision to overindulge at one point in their life and then found themselves sort of trapped by that sin, unable to get away from that sin. I would suggest to you that that can happen not just with alcohol, but also with something like sugar. When Brooke and I lived in Louisville, we found a place called Grater's Ice Cream right down the street from the seminary. This is the best stuff you've ever had in your life. I'm telling you, it's amazing. It's so good that I have been known from time to time, as recently as this week, to order Grater's ice cream from Kentucky and have them ship it to my house on dry ice. And some of you, when I posted that this week, said, can I come over and try it? And I said, no. And you said, well, that's selfish. When do we talk about that sin? And I said, it's not on the list of sins we're covering right now. I'm not inclined to preach a sermon on selfishness right now. It's my ice cream. It's so, so good. We moved there, and Brooke was pregnant with Emma, and uh, we bought into this, well, she's eating for two. I need to be supportive and come along. And I'm just telling you, it doesn't take long for a few trips to the ice cream shop to turn into a habit that turns into a nightly dinner is done, and you start saying, 
oh man, I could really use some black raspberry chocolate chip. I don't know if I can go to bed without it. Your mind fixates on it, even your body can become addicted to something like that. So that's a legitimate issue when you think about why gluttony is so common. Here's the biggest one, and I mean this in all seriousness. Most people tend to misunderstand gluttony. This goes back to what I said earlier where people kept saying, oh, I want to skip that sermon. Oh, I don't want to hear that one. I think a lot of the problem with gluttony revolves around misunderstanding of what this sin is and isn't. Look in your Bible at Luke chapter 7. I want to point out a fascinating passage. You can go back and read the context. This is sort of a discussion about Jesus and John the Baptist, the similarities and some of the differences. Look at Luke chapter 7, beginning in verse 33. This is Jesus speaking. Jesus says, John the Baptist has come eating no bread and drinking no wine, and you say he has a demon. The Son of Man has come eating and drinking, and you say, look at him, a glutton. You understand, Jesus was accused of the sin of gluttony. People looked at him, and they said, he's a glutton. Did Jesus ever commit any sin? The Bible is so clear that he did not. There are polls that come out every month. Church-going people are so confused on whether or not Jesus committed sin. There was a new one this week that came out. The majority of people in the United States think, yes, Jesus committed sin. The Bible says he did not commit sin. He was sinless. He was perfectly righteous. He was not guilty of gluttony, but they accused him of it. They were confused. They said, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners, yet wisdom is justified by all her children. They looked at John the Baptist, who didn't go to the parties and have the big dinners and drink wine, and they said, that guy's crazy. He wasn't crazy. He was the only one that had his head on straight. Then they looked at Jesus, who went to the parties and hung out with people and had dinner and had something to drink, and they said, well, he's a glutton and a drunkard. He was neither of those things. This is what my dad used to say. These people didn't know come here from Sikkim. They're totally confused about this sin. And we're totally confused about this sin many times. We reduce it to calories or we reduce it to one big meal or we say, oh, well, you ate ice cream for dinner. You must be guilty of gluttony. Here's the, the consequence when you're confused about gluttony. You end up laughing at things you shouldn't laugh at and you end up feeling guilty about things you have no business feeling guilty about. Confusion about sin and righteousness in the word of God never results in God-honoring obedience. It just results in confusion and more sin. Why is it a deadly sin? Let me give you a few biblical thoughts here. Why is this sin deadly? First of all, gluttony can lead to serious health problems. I think that's obvious to all of us, whether you're thinking about food or whether you're thinking about something like alcohol. Look what Proverbs says, Proverbs 25, 16. Put it up there, there it is. If you have found honey, eat only enough for you, lest you have your fill of it and vomit it. Proverbs is not trying to give you any kind of fancy medical diagnosis. It's just trying to give you wisdom about food, but you understand the point. Eat enough honey for you, not you and your neighbor. Otherwise, you might get sick. 
we would extend this wisdom and say, look, eat enough for yourself or a very real consequence is obesity that's going to cause health problems. Eat enough for yourself or there's going to be complications that arise on a physical level. We would take it the other direction when we think about extreme forms of dieting and we might say, eat enough for yourself. Be sure to do that so that you don't end up with a problem like anorexia or bulimia. Don't obsess over food. Just eat enough for yourself. The consequence could affect your health. Here's a a second reason it's deadly. Gluttony seeks to turn our legitimate need, and it is legitimate, turns our legitimate need for food into a temptation. How did the serpent tempt Adam and Eve in the garden? He began to question what God had said and not said. This is what we find in Genesis chapter 3. The woman saw that the tree was good for food. God made her physical, needing to eat food. And there was a whole garden of trees that she could eat from. And this one particular tree that she was not supposed to eat from was also good for food. It filled the belly when you ate it. And it was a delight to the eyes. There's nothing wrong with worrying about the presentation of a meal. Food should look good. It should taste good. It should look good. This meal was a delight to the eyes. Here's where she went off track. The tree was to be desired to make one wise. And what Adam and Eve saw in this meal was a way to be whole and complete and wise apart from God. That's the problem. That's when you take a legitimate need and you turn it into an ultimate thing that you are then worshiping. And the serpent used this legitimate need to tempt Adam and Eve. That's what the glutton is doing. They're falling for this temptation. The glutton is looking at food a meal as a means to be whole, as a means to feel better, as a means to be complete, as a means to leave all of his or her problems behind. That's Adam and Eve. What about Jesus? How did the tempter approach Jesus when he had been fasting for 40 days in the wilderness? We read this in the Gospel of Luke chapter 4. The devil said to him, if you are the Son of God... Command this stone to become bread. Jesus had been fasting for 40 days. The Bible subtly says he was hungry. Not surprising, right? You know how good bread tastes when you're hungry? You ever just been starving and you go to a restaurant that brings out bread before the meal and you think, oh, slather it with butter just bring seconds before I even eat the first loaf, like just keep it coming. Bread is good. Jesus in that moment could have fallen for the temptation and made the best bread ever. The first Adam forgot who he was. He forgot that he was a creature created to be dependent on the Lord God. And so he grasped for something that was not his to grasp for. He ate a meal that was not his to eat. The second Adam, Jesus, the better Adam, the true Adam, remembered that he was the Son of God. 
This is essentially a temptation to take a shortcut in his life and his ministry. You don't have to suffer. There's an easier way. That wasn't why he came at all. He remembered who he was. He remembered why he had come, and he resisted this temptation. Here's the point. If the enemy can use a tree to tempt Adam and Eve, and the enemy can use bread and rocks to tempt Jesus, he can use food and drink to tempt you and me. It's a legitimate need, and it gets twisted into something completely illegitimate. Here's a third reason it's deadly. Gluttony turns our hearts away from matters of ultimate importance. And I'm not saying to you that food is not important. Here in a couple hours, you're probably going to need to eat. That's important. But it's not ultimately important. And sometimes we forget that when we fall into this sin of gluttony. Think with me about Genesis 25. Esau comes in from hunting. He's hungry. And he tritely trades away something of great value, something of immense value, his birthright for soup. He just trades it away. And he thinks he's made a good deal, but it's a tragic situation. He doesn't see what's really important in that moment. He's controlled by his belly. Think with me about John 6. Jesus feeds a crowd of people, bread, The bread of life provides bread and an amazing miracle, the most public miracle Jesus ever performed. The next day, those people chase Jesus down. They don't want to talk to him. They don't want to listen to him. They don't want to submit to him. They don't want to follow him. They want seconds on bread. Think about that situation in John 6. The people in that crowd are literally arm's distance away from God in human flesh. They are looking at and listening to Emmanuel, God with us. And all they're concerned about is bread. They don't see what's of ultimate importance because they're focused on their bellies. That's what gluttony does. One last reason it's deadly, gluttony destroys our self-control. It destroys your self-control. I love Proverbs 25, 28. Proverbs 25, 28 describes people with no self-control as a city. It says, a man without self-control is like a city broken into and left without walls. In the ancient world, if your city had no walls, you were vulnerable to all sorts of dangers, all sorts of attacks. And the Bible is saying that if you don't have self-control, You're not just susceptible to gluttony, but you're susceptible to all sorts of sin and temptation. This is not a a sin that will stay isolated in your life as if it's the only issue that you're struggling with. It will have consequence for for all sorts of sin, all sorts of temptation. When you lack self-control, you are vulnerable to the attacks of the enemy. Self-control is actually described as a fruit of the Spirit. It's something that God is working in the lives and the hearts of his people. Self-control is something that we ought to seek to grow in, and it's something that we ought to ask the Holy Spirit to create in our lives, which brings me to this last question. How do we actually fight the sin of gluttony? How do we actually move forward in obedience When it comes to gluttony, let me give you a few thoughts. Number one, recognize gluttony as sin. Recognize what it is and what it's not. 
What it is, we need to see as sin. What it's not, we don't need to feel a, a false guilt about. Recognize it as sin. You look up Romans 16, Paul talks about people who serve their appetites. They don't serve God. It's what they were created to do. Rather, they serve their appetites. They're no different than a cow, just controlled by their physical appetites. You can look at what Paul says in Philippians chapter 3. He says, beware of people who worship their belly. They don't worship Jesus. They don't worship the one true God. They worship themselves by worshiping their belly. So one, we need to recognize it as sin. Number two, follow the example of Jesus. Jesus gives us a a pattern or an example that we can follow when it comes to this sin. We talked about Luke 4 earlier. Satan tempted Jesus to turn stones into bread. This is how Jesus responded. Jesus answered him, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone. And in that response, he's quoting the book of Deuteronomy that says, Moses speaking to the people, he humbled you and he let you hunger. God let his people get hungry. It wasn't an oversight, it was intentional. This is why he did it. He let you hunger so that he could feed you with manna, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Listen, Jesus quotes Deuteronomy 8, and he understands what Moses is saying to the people, because Jesus, get this, he actually believed Psalm 19. Psalm 19 says that the word of God is sweeter than honey. Last week we talked about greed and we said the word of God is better than a pile of gold and silver pieces. That's Psalm 19. Psalm 19 also says the word of God is sweeter than honey. Jesus actually believed that. The word of God is better, Jesus believed, than anything that could go into his mouth for dinner. Do we believe that? Do we believe what Jesus believed? Do you find more joy? I'm not saying what do you do most often. I'm saying do you find more joy in gathering together with God's people for worship and gathering around the word of God or do you find more joy in going to your favorite restaurant? Which one do you believe is better, the honey or the word of God? Would you rather spend an hour feasting on the Word of God or an hour watching your favorite show on Food Network? I'm not telling you to turn Food Network off. I'm just drilling down to the heart level, and I'm asking you and I'm asking myself, where is our joy found? Where is our treasure found? Is it in food or is it in the Word of God? We can follow the example of Jesus here. Thirdly, How do we fight gluttony? We practice the spiritual discipline of fasting. Matthew 6, Jesus assumes that his disciples will fast. My intention this morning is not to give you a fully orbed talk on fasting. We did that several months back, several years back. We talked about spiritual disciplines, and on a Wednesday night, we talked about fasting in particular. I recognize there's medical issues involved in fasting. Some people need to be careful about that. I certainly recognize there are issues of self 
righteousness, uh, sort of a pharisaical form of righteousness that can easily get tacked on to fasting. My point is that in Matthew 6, what Jesus seems to be saying is that fasting is one of the ways, not the only way, but one of the ways that God intends to teach us about food. So maybe this spiritual discipline is something you should consider. Lastly, and I would say most importantly, for our purposes this morning. How do we fight the sin of gluttony? We understand the role of food in redemptive history. Understand the role of food in redemptive history, in the story of salvation. Listen, our world is telling you a story about virtually everything. You don't have to even know that the world is telling you a story. It's telling you a story, and it's inputting that story into your mind through cartoons and sitcoms and commercials and all of the media we take in there's a story about the world being told to us we can listen to that story we can end up laughing at gluttony or we can end up just feeling guilty about things we have no business feeling guilty about or we can listen to the biblical story about food It's a story that begins in the beginning with the God who made everything, creating human beings in his image and giving them a physical body so that they have to eat. They have to drink. God looked at that and he said it was good. This biblical story recognizes that food was involved in the very first sin of Adam and Eve in the garden that plunged humanity into sin and ruin, that separated us from God. It's a story that freely admits that when God rescued a people to be his from slavery in Egypt, he not only delivered them from their taskmaster, but he fed them. He gave them bread from heaven. He gave them water from a rock. He met their physical needs for food and drink. It's a story that points us forward to Jesus, the promised Messiah who came to live for God's people, who came to obey and to never break God's law so that he might die for our sins, including our gluttony, on the cross. And on the night before he did that, he sat down with his disciples and he said that he was instituting the new covenant with his blood. And guess what they were doing when Jesus said that to them? They were feasting. The Passover meal was being eaten. They were celebrating. We remember that moment as a church family. From time to time, we take the Lord's Supper. We eat. We drink. Not just to meet our physical needs, but to remember what Jesus has done for us. And this story that began in the garden and that was plunged into ruin through food or a temptation that involved food, that involved Jesus coming to live for us and to die for us, it culminates in the end, not with a bunch of spirits floating around in the sky, but with people living on a new earth who have new bodies. The book of Revelation describes the scene and that we'll sit down together as the people of God in the kingdom of God. Jesus himself will serve us a meal, the marriage supper of the lamb. It's going to be the best meal you've ever eaten. It's going to be an unbelievable feast. It's not just going to meet our physical needs, but it's going to be a reminder of who Jesus is and what he's done to save us.